I'm Seth Day, I use he and they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. So first of all, thank you guys so much for being here. Um, We're going to do our name and pronouns, um, where you're from, your relationship with kids, and uh, how you identify in terms of race and or what your relationship is to that experience. So I guess we'll just um, go down the line and we'll start with Drew. Alrighty, my name is Drew. I use he and him pronouns, and I'm from Dallas area, Texas, like outside of the city. I have two kids, and they are biracial. Their dad is black, and I'm white. And I've done a lot of work with um, different people who raise kids or take care of kids around how to talk to kids about race and um, be more aware. Uh, my name is Lucy. I use she, her. I am originally for the, from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I am Ojibwe Menominee, which are two indigenous tribes. Um, but I've lived in New York City now for about oh, about 15 years. Um, and I have spent a lot of that time, um, I'm working in health sciences now um, with the LGBTQIA community doing like midwifery and um, obstetric support. Um, but I spent a lot of time before going back to school nannying. I worked for um, a couple of really large families like the one I'm from. Uh, and yeah. All right. Um, next, I use here they pronouns. Um, yeah, pronouns are a little up in the air right now, figuring all that out. Um, I am biracial. My dad is white and my mom is black. And I was born and raised in Maryland in the United States, um, but I currently live in Montreal. Um, and uh, my relationship with um, children and working with children um, for the past few years, I've done things that are related to English acquisition and literacy and working with um, especially younger kids, um, whether that's teaching abroad, teaching um, in a school that was predominantly um, Hispanophone um, in Baltimore, Maryland, and then now teaching English online and then doing more ESL related things. Um, So yeah. Amazing, because this is a very serious topic, and it's going to get very serious very fast. Um, I thought it would be fun to start with an anecdote to like maybe not jump right into being very serious and hard. So I don't know, does anyone have any any stories ver- like about either your race or like the you know like being around the kids that you work with? And then, so I don't know if anybody has a story that they want to share. I have this very particular memory when I was working for this large family that I just last worked for. The three-year-old was like snuggling me on the couch and she goes, you're the same color as my mom's coffee. And I love that. (laughs) And then she like stroked my face and walked away. She was just like, I have made this observation. I love the way the kids say like, I once had a child, this has nothing to do with race, but in a, in a similar way, I once had a child come up to me and be like, your hair is blue. And I was like, yeah, it is. And they were like, that's cool. Like they took a minute to decide, like I wasn't sure where it was going. And they took a minute to be like, yeah, that's cool. I was like, well, 
Thank you. <laughs> I'm I'm curious what uh, everyone's first memory of being aware of your own race was. If you like have a memory of that, or your first memory of like actively thinking, like oh, like realizing, like oh, people are are different. You know, everybody looks different, or th- that kind of. Because when we're very young, we don't really have a concept of that. And so I'm curious if anyone has a like a memory or an experience like when you were very young of that. Um, I'm just remembering. Um, I grew up in a pretty um, like ethnically and socioeconomically diverse um, suburb, um, and like my best friend at the time when I was little also had like a white dad and a black mom. So it was like one of those things where I was just so used to seeing people who like look very different and whether it was like in real life or in stories or in TV, like on TV, like I was so used to like this exposure to people, Oh, different races, different colors, skin tones, nationalities. Um, so yeah, I guess it was something I grew up very aware of. Um, and I remember there was this book called Black is Brown is Tan about this biracial family. And like in this, like there's been a few couple of editions of the book, but in the original edition, the couple looked so much like my parents. Like the resemblance is like kind of uncanny. Like even thinking about it, I was like, oh my God. Like I thought that the book was made like for my, like for my parents. Like because they That's look so, so funny. much alike. I like that. I love how you thought it was like one of those Barbie adventure books where you send away and they just write your name in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had a, I actually did have a, my twin doll when I was little. So like, you know, my parents like thought that, um, representation was very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I love that so much. I I used to nanny for a little kid who was um who was biracial. His dad was um from Uganda and his mom was um was white. So he had two baby dolls. He had a black baby doll and a white baby doll. And he always only wanted to play with the white baby doll and I was always like, "We need to unpack this." <laughs> but I also thought it was interesting that they like that they got him a black one and a white one and not like like one that was the same skin color as him but it's interesting the way um i don't know the way that kids interact with with race and like at the age that they sort of become aware of that stuff like there's gosh i don't remember if anyone knows who did that study with the baby dolls yeah i've heard of that yeah i forget what her name was you know what i'm talking about i need to like find the actual information and link it in the show notes but basically they gave like young black kids the option I think it was just black kids they gave them the option of a black or white doll and they like almost always chose the white doll and we're saying things like you know well that's the pretty one and that's the you know and it's like ah and so from a young age it's so important to have like you were saying like to have that kind of exposure and to have be seeing in picture books and on the media and not just like in your community too um it's always great to like you know, know that other people exist. And especially if you're like, I grew up in an all white community where like you have to try even harder to like make sure that your kids are having that exposure um, for sure. Anyway, um, does anyone else have a story about their earliest experience or an early experience of race? Um, Both of my parents are, or really my whole family were, um, indigenous activists and politicians and things like that. So 
we spent a lot of my childhood um, being part of educational programming for everyone in the surrounding areas. So um, we would do like dance uh, and regalia demonstrations in schools and like um, conferences and things like that. Kind of as you got older, being aware, walking through, you know, like a high school hallway when you're like six is like whatever. And, And the regalia that I was wearing was making a lot of noise. It has like jingles on it. So it makes a lot of noise. And I be I remember being vividly aware when I was about nine or ten, being like, "This makes me different, and it makes people interested in me." But I'm not sure in the right way. Like I remember being with my cousins and my friends, and and singing around a drum, and all of this was really just like secondary. Like we went to ceremonies. I went to a tribal school. We spoke our language. Um, But I remember very vividly being aware of like white gays about nine and like having this moment where it became such second nature to be like, look at my regalia. And now we're going to do a dance demonstration. And then we're going to go get McDonald's. Uh, And then being aware of like in a gymnasium full of people who are like, actively curious and sometimes rude about it but you know when it becomes secondary you're just like oh oh like yeah this moment of consciousness being like I don't know that everybody is curious in the right way here Drew did you have anything you want to share about that or sure all my beginning awareness of race and thinking of course this is situated from a white experience and growing up in suburban small town maybe it was like a little bit diverse but um mostly surrounded by white small town folks and also though growing up my uncle is from Mexico and um his family has joined our family in our farmer family in Oklahoma and the land and so in some way I grew up just having a an awareness of ethnic differences and embracing and enjoying that um but it was later elementary school that I remembered really vividly my first time talking to one of my parents about my very good friend at the time they're like who's your very good friend and of course this is black guy who I've been hanging out with friends and they're like oh no and of course I'm excited and this is my little girl so I'm trans so my little girl me is like oh maybe he's gonna be my boyfriend one day (laughs) and they're like no (laughs) um (laughs) so then I got really the schooling and it was brief but it was like no um and it was like oh interesting so my uncle can be from Mexico and I can have diversity around me but now I've crossed the line so (laughs) that was the beginning of my education in my family's racial dynamics (laughs) and probably did really good job of doing the opposite of what was intended I definitely have multiracial kids and have mostly had black partners and I'm like I'm, I have to say that because it's such a common story that I hear too from other white friends who end up um having biracial different race partnerships it's like 
yeah, there's a lot of us whose parents at some point were like, no, you won't. It's like, I'm sorry, that really definitely did not help. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> it's just, it's making me think about a time when I was a kid and my best friend happened to be Black. Um, for mm. we're best friends for many, many years. And we, I grew up in a neighborhood that was all white people. Like I just said, you know, it was like you could count the minorities on one hand kind of place. And um, I don't know how I turned out okay, to be completely honest with you. Um, and, <laughs> and my friend lived in a neighborhood that was pretty much all black people. And I remember being, I was pretty young. Uh, I was maybe, I don't know, like 10 or so. And I thought I was so smart because we were driving and I went to my mom and I was like, mom, I always know we're in Sharice's neighborhood. Do you know how? And she's like, because there's black people here. And I was like, how did you know my trick? I was like, so <laughs> I was so offended. I thought I was being so smart. But that was how I knew when we were there because I look out the window and there were people who were not white. Oh my gosh. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> so I'm this is sort of riffing off of the almost the more anecdote thing, but I'm curious if anyone's ever had an experience where like a kid actively asked you about your race or like about race in general, whether it was their race, your race. Um, yeah. I get parents a lot of the time that'll be like, um, she is a native American. How do you feel about that child? And the child's like, but like parents will actively be like, you know, they'll be like, ah, you need to learn all of the things. Like, you need to be able to, like, paint with the colors of the wind by the end of this <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, they're so invested in their child being well-rounded and knowing, like, a Native American. Oh, I definitely like, get that as a trans person where parents are like, oh, we love that you're trans because we want to expose our kids to new things. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to teach them how to color with crayons and like say words. <laughs> literally, literally. I'm like, I'm going to make sure they don't die at the park. <laughs> Lucy DeVoy, making sure your kids don't die at the park. Put that on your resume. What? 100% success rate. No children have died today. Sign my kids up. <laughs> I don't know. Does anyone else have an experience like that where a child, like, or a parent, apparently? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like I could almost, like, write a book about, like, things that, like, people say about, like, my hair, like, child's, like, children's comments about my hair, especially. Like, um i remember the one of the more recent ones was back um like not long after i started teaching english online to uh, kids in uh, china and there's this um i had just started with this company and then um it was like you know i'm like matched with the kid or whatever and i said and the first one of the if not the very first thing definitely one of the first things i think it was the first thing he said was like your hair it's crazy. And I'm like, okay. And then he ended up being my first, um, like regular student. So now I like, like I see him like since November, I've seen him like, or whatever. I've seen him like several times a week. So it's like, okay, I guess my hair is crazy and it's cool. And there we go. Um, and, uh, let's see what else is there. Yeah. Just, just like, there's been all sorts of fun comments, like, about that yeah like um i remember teaching when the movie um trolls 
that just come out. Yeah, so you already know where this is going. <laughs> and it's just like, and like this one girl asked me, like, is Mr. Max, if you don't cut your hair, does it go up and up like Princess Poppy or Branch? And I'm like, yes. Yes, that would be correct. That That is a true statement, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there, there you go. My hair, it's crazy, yeah. It's so funny how kids connect, like, things to what, <laughs> yeah. what's in their world, you know what I mean? Like, how... <laughs> I would say, made me think about my kids and what has been a kind of consistent occurrence in our lives um, and the me being usually alone with them, white parent with um, kids who are darker than me and hair darker than mine, whatever. The most common thing that I get is other kids asking, so where's your parent? Where's your mom, especially? Uh, the I think the trans stuff and then being a guy, a redest guy, whatever, in the mix of like, oh, some random dude walking around with like someone's kids. I don't know what, how, but, <laughs> but again and again, well, where's your mother? Um, and that's complicated because they have two dads. <laughs> so, and then a trans birth parent. <laughs> well, that is my, I mean, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I told them, you might as well just say that's my mother. Also, um, other kids and the, like, white kids and my kids and white kids who haven't hung out with as many kids of color being like, oh no, your skin is so dirty. We have to, um, that, especially in the early preschool, early elementary. And then my kids being like, wait, well, like, no, <laughs> that this is my skin color, y'all. Um, but I was trying to think of more like, oh, fun. That's not, but no, I can't think of any really fun, happy, but misconception or just like, yeah, people just being ignorant. <laughs> Kids are allowed. <laughs> that just made me think about, do any, do any of y'all know the comedian Kamau Bell? I don't. Okay. He's, uh, check him out. He's really good. He's a black parent and a lot of his comedy is about being a black parent. Um, and he has this, his, he, his kids are biracial, his wife is white, and his kids are, you know, lighter than him. And so a lot of times people don't code them as being related, like if he's just walking with her, like you were saying, um, because she, you know, she could be like potentially white passing. And he was saying that, you know, a lot of times like for work and things, he's traveling. And so they're in airports a lot. And at one time he was in an airport and she, you know, like, they'll kind of let her run around a little bit to get her, you know, sillies out before they're on the plane because that's not where you want to be getting your sillies out. No one appreciates that. <laughs> and so she'll be, you know, a little bit ahead of him and he's like, and I love it. I just love letting people look around and they're like, where's the parent? Where's the parent? Cause they see me and they're like, that's not the parent. That's a black man. And they're like, Oh no. And he's like, I just think it's a fun game. And I'm like, I love that idea. Oh yes. That, yeah. The intersectionality, right. If I'm a, appearing in my usual day-to-day -day, they probably oh some random gay dude also i don't know not first uh thought of yeah that's clearly those kids belong to that guy they're like who are you <laughs> how did you get all of <laughs> these kids <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh
Um, I also had a really interesting experience once when I was nannying a kid who was, he was biracial, he was half Indian and uh, half white. And he, I was with him and somebody walked up to me. Uh, I was nannying this child who is Indian and looked very Indian. And someone walked up to me and was like, you guys look so much alike. And I was like, that is clearly just a thing people say. Now, now I know that that is 100% just a phony baloney thing that people say because this child and I looked nothing alike, like <laughs> even a little bit like I, nothing. Um, cause that's happened to me before when I'm with kids who really <laughs> look like me and I'm like, okay, maybe we both have brown hair and brown eyes, like whatever. I guess that's all it takes when you're a baby to look like someone. But, um, I thought that was really interesting. I was like, what? no, we don't. <laughs> Well, I think I think nannying in New York City is really strange for one. <laughs> one, it's just strange. And then two, the last family I worked for full time had six kids, blonde hair, blue eyes, really white. And I would constantly get, oh my gosh, your kids are so beautiful. They look just like you. And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> it's just this weird thing where you go, A, their mother has like dark hair, but she's obviously a white person. And I'm like, maybe not really. But then I realized that people were saying it in this particular situation to me because they were pegging me as a parent because all of the other nannies at the playground were like, Caribbean descent or African like from Africa in their like last you know and once in a while I'd meet like a Puerto Rican nanny but I just thought how weird and they weren't pegging me as like what they had assumed these women look like they were pegging me as a parent so it'd be like the parents would talk to me and then I would end up you know, trying to make friends with the nannies and they're like, oh, they're fine. They're fine. You know, and they like trying to be like, so where do your kids go to school? What, um, you know, what middle school are you guys prepping for? And things like that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not these kids parent. And they'd be like, oh, you must be a grad uh, student then. And I'm like, hmm, <laughs> there's like lots to unpack there. And I'm like, and the other thing is, like, I'm a plus-size, really tall, brown lady, and, like, trying to unpack all of these, like, again, homogeny and this, like, homogenous white lady mom look who's taking their kids to the park while their nanny is out for the day. It's just, nannying in New York City is so weird. Yes, I can second that. As a As a white person, I found that people always assumed I was a parent, even when the kid was a different race than me. People, I, I nannied for kids of all different races and people always assumed I was a parent because I was white and I was like, yeah. And I have, I have a friend who, um, is a black person who carry, who, I mean, carried their child, like, just like, you know, had a baby and, um, their baby happened to be white, but like, whatever, there was like recessive genes and like their kid just happened to be white, um, much lighter than them, at least they're white passing. And people constantly think that they're the nanny all the time because they're darker than their kid. And it's so interesting. Like if you're, if the kid is darker than you, that people will assume that I'm a parent and people will assume that other 
people of color, if people of color are with kids, then they're now. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack. At least in New York, especially because it's different in different places. But in in New York, it's like prim- primarily nannies are like middle aged women of color. Um, I feel like I can say mm-hmm. that with like pretty confidence that that is <laughs> like yeah. And I mean, not to get too far off topic, but I also like when I started making friends with nannies, because I worked with for this last family for about two years. um, And um, when I started like making friends with the nannies, I would see every day and, you know, we'd bring each other lunch and sit there and chat about our lives. Um, I realized that I was also getting paid probably like seven or eight dollars more an hour than these women who are with children. 24 hours a day who were there on weekends and I could not tell the difference except for yeah they were middle-aged women of color um in this particular neighborhood on the upper west side of New York um all of them were from different Caribbean countries so I don't know if that added to like how the parents were um painting them with broad brush strokes and it's like, the, I, I knew probably about 20 women um, between like where we would go to the park and where we would go to the playground at the kids' school and like, you know, programming that we'd go, we'd take the kids to on the Upper West Side. Um, it was just, yeah, I don't know. It was just nannying in very wealthy cities is is a lot to unpack about race and yeah, I, I don't know, actually, racism, I'm going to say this one thing and then we'll move to the next question. But I actually had an experience once where a family didn't hire me because they like outright told me they, they really liked me and that, like I was great with the kid, but they didn't hire me because they didn't think I would be able to interact because all the nannies are like middle-aged black women and they were like, how they're not going to accept you. <laughs> like, how is our kid going to get playdates and stuff? And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's really, it's interesting kind of um, wow. like the, in New York City, we could do a whole episode just about nannying in New York City. Um, but so my, uh, the next thing I actually, um, Drew, I had a question for you. I'm curious, like, as far as because you, uh, you know, have a different racial identity than your kids, like, how do you talk to them, to, to them about that or to other kids in your life? You know, like, how, how did you handle that? Are you in your, yeah. Okay, great. Um, so I should preface because I, I would like to be relatable to white audience folks, but also I have a kind of unique trajectory before I started having or thinking about having multiracial kids. I was pretty clear that like a lot of education and things were important and necessary. And so Thankfully, I had some time of like unpacking and um, well, my whole minor in my bachelor's Mm -hmm. degree was ethnic and racial studies. And in some of those classes, we're talking about multiracial families and things. So I felt like I got some good foundation of like, if you're going to go into this Mm -hmm. eyes wide open and really want to be educated, what are some ways to do that? So I'm really glad for that because I could think of, you know, if I hadn't had those opportunities or experiences and I just ended up in a relationship, first one of my life or something, and that was like the first time I had dated outside of my race, I think that would have been really different than, and had kids with that person different than how I was able to come into the experience because of my past 
that brought me there. So that to say, I went in with a very intentional, like, we're going to be talking about race, um, racism, ethnicity, all of this from the get-go, and all of your baby books are going to have all these diverse babies, and mostly we're going to have a bunch of Black babies books, <laughs> and, like, um, <clears throat> and just talking a lot about skin color and hair texture and being really pro all of your characteristics are beautiful and these are the unique kind of traits of people that have helped make who you are your ancestors of different lineages um and for me i was pretty clear and i'm trying to remember resource beverly tatum maybe i'm not sure how to say her last name but she's written a lot of great information about race and kids and wrote mm. the book why all the black kids are sitting together in the cafeteria or something like that um anyway she's a great resource she i think it was her has talked a lot about the need to build up a kind of positive racial framework and a positive racial identity before introducing mm. or talking about things like racism with little kids. So for me, I was thinking I've got as much time as I can get in here to talk about all these positive things before I need to start introducing. Also, here's the really painful and difficult parts of your history, because if you just kind of go into that without yeah. the other balancing side, I think that can be a lot more overwhelming for little kids who can't change the world that they just found out was, I'm sorry, terrible in a lot of ways. So um, I've made it a really intentional, like, yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about race. Let's talk about race constantly because it is reality constantly. Mm. And not talking about it creates a lot more harm in my perspective, especially for a kid of color in a white parent household feel like, I don't know, can I or can't I, or is my experience valid? I don't even know. No, let me tell you, your experience is valid constantly. <laughs> and um, also, let me help you develop a kind of awareness. Mm. So all of this stuff that you could internalize, you have a chance at externalizing it because you have some framework. So for example, I just remember, I don't know, my daughter must have been something like four or five years old. And because we had gone through the cereal aisle enough times and talked about all those white kids on all those cereal boxes, <laughs> some point later, um, when we were walking down another, you know, we're talking about advertisements. And it, if you like hear me on repeat through a lot of my parenting, <laughs> probably like, yeah, because white people started this and then they picked more white people to do this. <laughs> and then that's how you see. So trying to explain all of this and like simple kid-friendly terms without overwhelming but also giving like yeah here's literally what happened basically and um here's where that's not your fault and here's all this other great and positive things to know about yeah. your community and like the history that has faced this reality and um so I would say long answer to the point yes definitely talking a lot about race and I want to say even because race isn't a real thing but racism is and that we have come up with all these ideas that people can be categorized and things based on race only because of white supremacy yeah. and the system that utilizes those to create benefit against others all that stuff 
Uh, well, so ethnicity and talking about different cultures and just trying to be really also intentional for my kids that you have a lot of exposure to different ethnicities of all different kinds. And as you grow, you get to learn more of the history and what's made people who they are and where they are today. I think you definitely like hit the nail on the head as far as being proactive is so important. I feel like it across the board, just like teaching before it, I mean, it's always necessary, but you know what I mean? Before, I feel like we should be talking to kids about things before they start asking questions. Because when they start asking questions, I think it's often too late um, to build those kinds of frameworks and foundations that they need, um, regardless of what that topic is, but especially when it comes to race and ethnicity and things like that. All right, we're just going to take a quick break for some announcements. So first of all, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Radchild Podcast. I've just been so excited about all of the positive feedback that we've been getting. Uh, it just really brings me a lot of joy. So thank you so much for listening. Really, y'all make this worthwhile because if no one was listening, I would just be talking into a void. So I appreciate that. Thank you for being here. <laughs> As usual, uh, if you are one of our um, backers from the Kickstarter, your thank yous will be at the end in song form. Speaking of, all of the backer rewards have been sent out. So you should be receiving your rewards in the mail if you have not already. Uh, and the only thing that has not been dealt out yet is the early release and um, bonus content because I have not been able to get get the episodes out before they were release date. So hopefully um, in September I should be able to start doing early release because my schedule is going to change a little bit and it's going to allow me to have some more free time to do that. And you will be getting your bonus content retroactively. I just wanted to thank everybody who came out to Philly Trans Wellness Conference last week. Uh, it was so much, it was so humbling and exciting to meet fans and honestly to find out that we already have fans is pretty cool since we're so new and that people have heard of us and just to meet new people who are excited about the show. So thank you to all of you new subscribers who I met at the conference, hooray! And of course, please, if you're enjoying the show, there are things that you can do besides subscribing. You can also please just tell people about the show because right now, uh, word of mouth is just the best way to let people know if you know people who you think might be interested, please, please share the podcast with them. Um, you can also, I know that everyone says this, but please, if you can rate and review on Apple Podcasts, um, it really helps us out uh, to get those numbers and to get sponsors and things like that. They want to see those numbers. So thank you for doing that. You can also always donate on our Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com and you just search Radchild Podcast, we're the only one that comes up and you'll be able to find us and you can donate as little as a dollar a month and get some really cool different kinds of rewards. Those rewards, actually, I'm going to be updating them soon and making some even cooler things. But yeah, you'll be able to get some cool rewards and you can give us a monthly donation, which is really helpful. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, of course, you can always follow us. Um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and what's that other one? Twitter. I'm old. Um, <laughs> we're on all of those places at Radchild Podcast, so it's really easy to find us. You can also email us. Um, it's just radchildpodcast at gmail.com. They're the same thing everywhere, so it's really simple to be able to find us. 
Um, and the last update is just that, I know I've mentioned this, but we are partnering with this really, really cool company called Shift Book Box. And basically what they do is each month they send out a curated box about a theme and they do very similar themes to what we're doing around teaching kids about things like race and gender and you know all of those different kinds of topics. They recently did one on reclaiming fat and body positivity uh, which I thought was an awesome theme. Um, so things like that and basically they send you two children's books every month about that topic. You can check them out at shiftbookbox.com. So what we're doing is we're going to partner with them and starting hopefully in September at the end of every episode they're going to join me for the book discussion and they're going to add suggestions about children's books um, because that is their specialty. So I'm really excited to have Crystal and Rebecca from Shift Book Box on in upcoming episodes. All right, without further ado, let's get back to the show. So I'm curious if y'all have had experiences either where you've experienced racism while with children or the children that you were with experienced racism. So just like experiences of racism while children were present, or even if you like witnessed something, something like that, where then you had to unpack that with kids or figure that out. I just think that um, Elsa, there's too much Elsa in the world. Like, I think that like kind of sums everything up. Like I feel as if... um, (laughs) I guess this isn't talking about like a specific like instant instance of racism. Like I'm definitely, I'm definitely thinking about one. Like I'm sure like going through the recesses of my mind, but um something that like definitely comes to mind is like even though yes, like there are these diverse children's book and even like in main more mainstream like media, um, it is becoming more and more diverse and it's like awesome to see that. And at the same time it's like there's all this that's coming up and then even though it's been several like years now, like almost six years or whatever, since like Frozen came out, it's like still like Elsa is like the center of this is what beauty is. And it's like again and again and again. And it's like, why is Elsa so pretty? And so it's like one of those things where um, like the little things that I could do is just like make sure that I was exposing kids to like books that weren't just white, blonde and or blue eyed or white, pale people um but yeah it's like one of those things where it's like how do we like avoid that where it's like there's this one like ideal of this is what pretty looks like this is what you know and I I'm still like trying to figure out like how to work past that and how to like yeah we talk about that kind of thing specifically with my kids partly after I mean I was talking about wanting to have a bunch of exposure and everything but then once they've like gotten to be in elementary school and they still come home saying I want to straighten my hair I don't want my curly hair anymore and like rejecting the kinkiness um it's like it's so constant and it's so it's just internalized it can't not be it's it's like the air we're breathing they're breathing everywhere they look everywhere they go what they see as beautiful and what people tell them is beautiful it's that's I think one of the most constant kind of messages that it is hard because it's everywhere you look literally and I think that was part of why wanting to just even bring attention to that in my own kids like know that 
people made those ads know that probably if you see a bunch of white people, white people made those ads. And if you you see a whole lot of lack of people of color, that's probably because on the other side, there's no people of color over there either. And then the whole system of racism and how did people get to where they're, and you know, it depends on what age we're working with. And I'm so glad that my kids are just old enough now. I think that they can start kind of getting this system of, it and I think that helps take it less personally but um I do think that it that it just requires so much like intentional showing of beauty different beauty on the other side and constantly like trying to show my daughter images of African even models like oh my god look at all of these beautiful models all over Africa you don't see anything like that in our models and our typical ad you know look at beauty all over the world it's so different. Our definitions and standards of beauty and they're yep. all historically based and over here they're all historically based in white supremacy. So um yeah, and lots of conversations and then still see, yeah, and we still see in ourselves we struggle, you know, as trans people internalized transphobia, people of color internalized race yeah, constant. But I think being willing and able to keep having the conversations and being ready for them and doing the like as much other side information and access to what you're not getting standard. It's like a lot of the work building, bringing in, yeah, the representation. Yeah, for for me, because I'm kind of a smaller minority or a lot less people are exposed to indigenous people unless they live in like, you know, large areas of indigenous uh, culture, like uh, in the Southwest or parts of the like tip of the, of the West coast, like the Northern West coast or um, where I'm from, you know, in the mid, like the upper part of the Midwest, almost in, in truth, Canada. Um, For me, (laughs) I'm still fighting for families to understand what is blatantly racist. Um, Halloween costumes are a big one that I go round and round and round with families about. Like the Pocahontas, it's been multiple families now that I've worked with where Halloween rolls around. And without identifying me as an indigenous person, uh, families will be like, well, she wants to be an Indian princess and they want to be an astronaut and she's going to be a zombie. And I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Um, and so, so A, Halloween is not my favorite time of the year for a multitude of reasons. <laughs> but um, especially when working with kids, it never fails that it does not register no matter how much I've tried to talk about my culture and um, how I grew up and, and introducing in, you know, activities I did as a child, like um, beadwork, or we even have gone to powwows with kids. And for some reason it doesn't register to parents that that is blatantly racist or sometimes on the weekends, when I'm not there, somehow they will still get exposure to things like Pocahontas or Peter Pan. And we will have to unpack the idea of it being inappropriate in a world where they maybe have not experienced things being 
inappropriate in media. Yeah. For sure. So. I think a lot of parents, especially for some reason with like indigenous culture, I feel like a lot of parents aren't like, it's not even on their radar that that kind of stuff is inappropriate. I don't. And I guess like you were saying, maybe it's because, um, you know, people just don't have as much exposure, which is like not an excuse, but like, it's, it's a weird kind of pocket where people still think that's okay. Like just like within the last couple of years, I this I have some sort of like not distant family but family I don't they're like second cousins kind of thing who I don't really talk to and my aunt was like you know look at me I am a Native American for Halloween and I was like oh boy this is like happening right now in my world with someone that you know like you like I feel like every year I'm like people are dumb I can't believe they do that and then it was like someone that I knew and was related to me and I was like oh yikes like this is still a thing that people yeah. are doing all the time. Well, I mean, we just passed Cinco de Mayo, so I know it's not specifically oh, structured to just the kind of indigeny that I am offended by, but all kinds of different indigeny. Oh, yeah. But um, I think, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack with that, too, so I'll just kind of keep it brief. But um, it is the idea that you are, and, and maybe, again, you can relate this back to how you feel as a trans person being like, I am the token human being who is like intersectional, but it doesn't really register or mean anything to parents or the families that you work with. Um, it's just kind of cool anecdotal evidence for them to be like, we're so, you know, we're so all kinds of multitudes of not racist and not um, homophobic and, and mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. Um, But the funny thing is, too, and I even tried to explain to the family that I was with uh, two families ago, I said to them, listen, my grandparents are residential school survivors. This is not something that is in the past for us. Um, It has affected even my childhood where we weren't allowed to play in like the front yard or uh, go places without, you know, someone being with us um, because that fear that someone would take mm. us was really palatable for my grandparents and my parents and because they yeah. were taken. Do you know what I mean? So it's not necessarily something that is in the way past that we're even having time to to deal with and like trying to explain that to people I just don't think that a lot of folks have the life experience to wrap their head around that um and that even you know if we want to take it away from my experience with like um with the the current political climate with you know um things like that like it is incredibly inappropriate to be dressing up for Cinco de Mayo and like exposing your kids to like that kind of like it's fine to make fun of another culture it's the 5th of of May you know oh before we go on to the next question I was thinking as far as like kids and experiencing racism stuff um so it's not stuff that my kids have been aware of. It's more stuff that I've either as a parent or as a like um, person in classrooms uh, experiences. One of the most consistent I've worked in schools, either volunteering or as like an aide support, I've worked in deaf schools and hearing schools and 
different areas of cities and um, a very consistent experience of children, especially boys of color, being labeled behavior problems instead of being seen for being bored because there's a buff or, you know, already got the content that's being shared. And so they're acting like most bored kids do. But um, in my own kids and in other kids I've worked with, I've seen a consistent this kid actually needed to be labeled as gifted and given appropriately challenging work. And instead I'm now the, like one of the kids that I've worked with a one-on-one support for, they're saying, oh, he has behavior problems and we're thinking about medicating him. And this is a deaf child of Puerto Rican descent who has not had access to sign language for most of their life, who is brilliant despite and wanting to be able to engage but doesn't have literally the tools to so a lot of my work was giving him the tools to um you know do what he needed but also educating the people around him like this kid is smart and can totally do all of the things that you're asking and more is the issue okay so actually and so we supported him for like six months and was like okay he doesn't need support what he needs is y'all's support now um but just to say from an educator and educational perspective i think it's very consistent issue around labeling boys of color to be behavior issues instead of seeing their capacities and yeah understanding absolutely i feel i feel like it also happens a lot where as an as an educator, um, you know, because like my, my background is in art ed and I was working in schools for a bit. And I find, unfortunately, a lot of the time, some teachers will, instead of putting the onus on themselves, will put the onus on the kids. Um, and, and it's just like, instead of saying, I need to be doing something different as an educator, what I'm doing isn't working. It's like, well, it must be the kid. And yeah, I think that Kids are, I've found like even working with young kids. I mean, I've worked with kids, you know, as young as a month, two months. And I think that kids understand even from infancy so much more than we think they do. And it's just Mm -hmm. because they can't communicate in the way that we can, um, that we think that, you know, they're not as smart as, you know, but they have like, they're able to understand so much and they're so much smarter than I think a lot of adults give them credit for. Um, just in general. And when we write kids off, it's just like, you know, we, we're just giving them such a disadvantage and it's so unfair to, because of our ego being like, oh, well, it can't be me. You yeah. Know? And the older they get, the more <laughs> um, consequences that can have lifelong. And I mean, even yeah. early because this yeah. kid was in kindergarten, if like, I don't know, thinking without the kind of correct intervention or awareness in that case, you could track this kid in the completely mm-hmm. wrong direction for the entire rest of his school career. Stop. <laughs> oh, my God. It might upset <laughs> me a little. <laughs> no, I love that. I just like, ah, it's true, though. It's just so frustrating. It's so, especially when you're like a paraeducator or you're not like I was a cooperating teacher, mm-hmm. student teaching and would be seeing these things. And I'm like, I'm not in a position where I feel like I can really do, mm. um, you know, as much yes. as I wish I could uh, sometimes. Like, and, and when you do talk to the mm. teachers and they're like, excuse me, who do you think yes. you are? And you're like, I think I'm an educator <laughs> trying to help you do your job. 
<laughs> anyway. I was like remembering something and then I like I do have like an anecdote, like a solid anecdote. I promise it won't take that long. Um yeah, so um uh when I was working in living and working in Baltimore, um, so I would be working like at a school, like preschool, like classroom at an elementary middle school during the day and then a couple of times a week I would volunteer um at a place called Esperanza Center which um is um provides lots of different um resources for like recent immigrants um and one of the programs that they have um the one that I volunteered with was the um like ESOL program and they had a youth ESOL program um for middle school and high school students um and there is this one time where um, we had a with the, I was um, volunteering with a teacher who's um, Latina herself, and um, this kid um, was saying like how like oh yeah no how he like didn't like the black kids at school and it's like they were like stupid or mean or something, and it's um, like really interesting to see like and we both like talked about that and she said like oh yeah like. Yeah, and she's like Latina, but her son, um, like his biological, like his father was black, and so she has she has a black child, and I'm black, and they didn't realize that. Um, and so it was like me, her, and then like the woman who like coordinated the program were all talking about it, and then I like, unfortunately, I think I got like a little bit too much in my head, and I was um, started to go on to the kids about how like you know all these like horrible things have happened to black people, and like there's black people in Latin America as well, and like Baltimore has like historically been a very black city, and like you know it's like like I was going on and on to these kids, and then um, I remember like I think the next time we had class together like the teacher pulled me aside and was like oh it's like you know like I appreciate that you help but like make sure like but think about like how you're helping and like she didn't explicitly say that it was referencing that but it was like I knew that it was referencing that um and so it was just like one of those things where like to this day I'm kind of like milling over it like okay was I because I'm not usually someone who like talks a lot like as a volunteer or whatever but it was just like I don't know, like, it was really interesting, um, and it also makes me think of when I was, um, in France, I decided to, like, give a unit on, like, the history of American music, and so I talked all about Black people and how it's, like, Black music, and, like, didn't even mention Elvis, for example, but showed them, like, people, like, um, like, Black female artists who had started rock and roll, but it's just, like, you know, and they understood that, you know, and so I can't help but feel like, even though, sure, I was going on and on or whatever, um, I don't think it was for that long. It was just, you know, a couple of minutes to like, you know, let's let's address this and talk about this uh, because there are black people everywhere, even in the countries you like you've integrated from, like they're everywhere. Um, and so <laughs> we're, we're everywhere. Um, and so I don't know, like, it's just... Um, yeah, because I think, like, even, like, different minorities, there is this racial tension, like, oh, like, uh, like, black people are dumb, oh, the Latin American people, they're taking, like, there's so many, like, seeing it, like, in Baltimore, like, even within, like, minorities, like, yeah. these, like, tensions, like, who, like, and it's just, it's something that needs to, like, be addressed, and I don't know, I, and again, I think it's kind of going with, like, with your saying, like, um, obviously, these, these were high school boys, so, 
but even then it's like I think kids like understand more than we give them credit for and I think sometimes you do need to be a little firm so I like I can't help but feel like even though maybe if I'd like had more time to like process and wasn't just like I am angry that this kid said this um I don't know I think it's a conversation that still needs to happen and I yeah yeah well I and I think a lot of times teachers and I you know in that um example you know the teacher the teacher wasn't a white person but like I think a lot of times white white teachers I found get very like I can't talk about race and I'm like but you still need to you just need to figure out how to do it the right own they said 11 o'clock don't you dare start construction I will go outside um I hear rocks a tumbling (laughs) yeah and it was like yeah I don't and like if you don't have if you don't feel like you have the tools to do it then bring someone into the classroom to do it. exactly yeah and like one of the other teachers um was a black woman and like there there's like people who were on and she taught the advanced class there are people who are like yeah I don't want her as my teacher because I can't understand what she says but I feel like there was still like there's there's definitely some racism issues there um I think Drew and I just made the same face yeah <laughs> Yeah, oh it gosh. is. Yeah, right. there's a lot. Um, so, um, going back to, I'm so like, I totally, I love this tangent. I'm not mad about it at all. Um, that's what I love about discussions is that we end up going in in ways that you couldn't even predict, which is the best part. Um, so I'm curious. Um, going back to the original question of like, when children experience racism or witness racism either happening to themselves or you know happening in the world like how how do we explain that to them um I mean especially when it's personal I think it's it's harder but like because kids aren't programmed to you know I feel like I can't imagine that first moment of being like oh people just like hate me because of a way I am you know and how do we explain mm. that really hard truth to children and i think it's important like drew was saying before where we set the foundations of talking about race and positive thing first for sure is really important um but yeah aside from that like what do we do in those instances i think my um in my family i think the um you know, we're very, we're very community oriented in indigenous communities. Um, everyone's your auntie or your noko, which is like your grandmother or, you know. Um, and I think that when I was coming up, you know, they're like, this is the second wave of children who haven't experienced what we've experienced. So how do we make things better or different or what kind of community structures do we, um, help arm our children with um i i know from experience my own life with my nieces and nephews i know from my my own experience as a child um that a lot of the tools that my community has like equipped me with one is always humor talking about how like you know, you can be really devastated by this, or you can look at the absurdity of this, but, but it's kind of like, um, what Drew was saying was that you build a strong foundation of, like, sustainable pride or understanding of self, like, to the best of your ability. I don't think any parent will ever think they've done that enough. I don't think any community will feel like they've, like, 
given their children enough fortitude. It's just kind of, especially in uh, minority communities, I, I just feel like, you know, we're doing our best to like see the humor in things, even when it's not a humorous situation. We are doing the best, yeah, fortify our children to go out into the world. Um, the other thing is, I think, building tolerant and understanding safe space. Um, I, you know, whether that's at home or community centers or a book club or like these are your cousins or, you know, it's, I think it's building safe space. Um, and that, you know, sometimes can't be in your home. It's got to be outside of your home. Um, and then, you know, and I think as queer people, we understand the idea of chosen family in a very tangible way. Um, you, you know, and personally, that's what I look to build. I just had one of my nieces, she turned 13, which is a big year in our culture. Not like she doesn't get a bonus for anything like that. But she, uh, you know, it's a big year. It's like the beginning of your adulthood. And um, she came up to New York in March and I was really pleased that I could introduce her to this community that, that, that is my chosen family here. And I think about what kind of experience it is for her to leave this little rural community that is very racially charged that um, where she's spending a lot of time in indigenous tribal schools and indigenous communities and families and what it's like to step outside of that world and know that there is safety and that there are good people and that there are support mm -hmm. even in strangers. Like I think there's a lot to be said about finding that support and, and allowing children to understand that there is support outside of your immediate family to deal with these moments where the world is not amazing. And, you know, in those moments where racism and, and transphobia and homophobia and all of that, you know, are predominant in their experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, does any anybody else have anything to say on that? Um, thinking, I appreciate what you were saying, Lucy, about community and the importance of having safety, like really, I think a group of people or groups of people where the kid is not going to be having that experience and where kid is going to experience the reinforcement of that wasn't about you. That was that ignorant shit. And yes, it's still going on, but that was not your fault. You didn't do anything to cause that. This is not something you need to internalize as something that you've done wrong in any kind of way. What you need to know is like, there's a history behind why this happens. And this is now my kind of, how do I approach it? I, I think it's so important and helpful for kids to have a kind of foundation with some history. And as you're saying in community, that's just part of community sharing and knowledge that 
this is what buffers you from the experiences that you could be having without validation or understanding and support. And in that situation, for example, multiracial kids who have white parents or adopted into white parent families and the white parents are not willing or able to talk about race or racism or the history of anything and also could yeah. even be as harmful unintentionally but still harmful as to completely invalidate said child's experience with oh no i'm sure they didn't mean that kind of dismissive approaches so again i think for me too having chosen family and having a very diverse community around my kids that there's every different kind of person that they could go to in their lives of processing and um, as a white person i'm not always going to be their first choice i would assume to process as they get older especially but i want to make sure that they have plenty of people role models around them who they do feel comfortable if it's not me you know xyz many other so-and-sos who you might want to go and vent about this with who can also relate to you and tell you how they've handled this situation in the past and i'll be here telling you that was not your fault and that was some ignorant bs but um i think it really does make make a big difference to have the community support and to just not feel alone or individually responsible for those experiences yeah i feel like community is so important like regardless of what we're talking mm -hmm. about you know i feel like having that community of people there validating you and making you feel like again being like that wasn't your fault you know people are like i feel like that's it's really really important to have that kind of support support net so I was thinking a lot about like police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. And where I was hearing a lot of like, as a white person, right, my parents did not sit me down and prepare me to experience racism. And uh, that was like, after those movements happened, I was seeing a lot of like reading articles and watching videos of people's experiences talking about how they would will sit their kids down and just like, you know, tell them precautions to take or tell them you know again where it's like this is absolutely not you we sh this shouldn't be happening but like don't you know walk alone in this in this area or at night or don't you know like if this happens here's what you should be doing and things like that and so I'm curious if anyone if any of y'all had experiences where like your parents prepared you specifically to experience racism or like where you did that with kids that you you know the kids in your life definitely um did that i remember like a, like i distinctly remember like a couple of times growing up when she would like really like you know lay us down like oh yes there's this happened probably because this person didn't like little black boys and just like she would you know like be very explicit about that um and then i remember um for my two younger brothers um it's i like, I do wonder if things have changed. I mean, the two of them, um, one of them's 22, which is so weird to believe. The other one's 19. Um, but they're, like, still, like, living at home and very much, like, very youthful, young, innocent, I guess you would say, people who are just, you know, set in their ways and whatever. Um, but I remember a few years ago, um, there was a local photographer who, um, somewhat family friend, like, we've, like, you know, 
grown up in the same neighborhood and stuff. And he's like a photographer and journalist. And so he decided to do a piece on white parents um, of black children and like how they talk to them about race. I think especially like, like in this case, it was like, it was like my father and like my two brothers, um, like, especially like how like white men talk to their like black children about this. Um, and, um, it was interesting because I think my, um, even like in conversations that I had like before and after with my brothers, um, just, it was like, yeah, you know, if I see a police officer, like it's usually okay. Or I'll just listen or like, it was all very like, Oh, like it was kind of like separating themselves from like those people or whatever. And it was just very like, you know, like odd. I mean, it's like, but at the same time, it's like I understood because they're in their like little safe bubbles or whatever, and they are fair skinned. Um, they do have both of them do have very distinctively like black features, like between like their hair and like nose and like other features that are distinctively like black. It's like they're clearly people of color, but they're also very fair um, and would up and have very different experiences than black boys like who are darker skin for example or who dress differently um and so it's like yes fine that's their reality but at the same time it was like I couldn't help but feel like oh man they're in this bubble like they're so like dismissive of these experiences and like well what if they do have these these experiences where they are being very racialized and I know that they like I know that they have had experiences where they have very much been like racialized and kind of like seen a certain way because of like their skin and because of their race and um or the race that they're read as and it's just um and it was like at this point I was like being like so invested in like the movement it's like I'd even gone to like a couple of protests that were like related to the Black Lives Matter movement um and because this was like this is like the year where it was like back to back to back to back to back like police shootings of black of like young black men and so this is why that like that newspaper article was being created and it's just like one of those things where you know sometimes you almost like want to be like you know what this is a problem like be careful like I don't I want you to be safe like you might not always be in this like bubble and there are like pretty awful people like out there and again like I haven't really talked to them like over the like specifically about this thing as much over the past few years but it's like I like I'm aware when it's happening like I I don't know it's like this issue where it's like I just like you don't get it like this is such a big problem like and I'm scared and the world is scary and it might not be nice to you and like I want to be like somewhat of an optimist but at the same time it's yeah it's like I don't want to sound like I'm like this you know know it all uber woke the wokest of the woke person but at the same time it's like you know it's like this is a thing that happens that you should like know about and be like aware of and yeah like you can't run away from these things because like they come up and it's not always pretty and yeah I don't know yeah I know that makes a lot of sense Lucy were you starting to say something yeah, I've had um, a similar experience, but maybe in a little bit of a different way. Um, I very vividly remember 
that in order to leave the reservation that I was born on, um, even though I love my family and I love my community, um, it was like, in order to leave, there's like a very stark rejection that has to happen. Like you have to physically be like, I am going out into the world and I have to leave my indigenous there to like make it through the doors and then refind it. And I remember having this conversation uh, with one of my aunts being like, you know, my auntie sat me down and she's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to study, you know, arts and I'm going to go do this in the world. And she is not as open and as exciting and safe as I think that you think it is. And you need to be aware. And, you know, what those series of conversations were, were like a rejection of the indigenous and a rejection was almost like, like a whorephobia. And, and I didn't understand it for years. And I was like, I was like, I don't understand. Are you just worried I'm going to get pregnant and stuck? Like, what is that about? Um, and it was like very stern warnings about drugs and alcohol, which I think a lot of parents do, but this one had like a different connotation. And I, I, I remember trying to unpack it for like the first two years I was away from home. And I realized that to her, that kind of conversation was trying to protect me against not only racism in the world, but the idea that so many women leave our community yeah. for one reason or another and they don't return. Like, um, it's very tangible. The, the, you know, the murdered and missing indigenous women movement is very tangible in my community. Like, um, another girl just went missing what was it like two weeks ago when they found her, they don't know how she died or how she was murdered. So it was very tangible. So I remember very specifically having these conversations and, and it probably scared the shit out of my family. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to move to New York city. Screw what you think. It's going to be fine. You know? Um, and just, you know, it, it becomes like this, this fear of what it means to leave your community, but in order to have anything, mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of indigenous folks have to leave their community. There's not enough jobs. There's not enough opportunities. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're still dealing with intergenerational trauma with alcoholism and sexual abuse. And, and so, you know, the up and out comes with like this big caveat of fear and, um, I think as a community, as, as and I can only speak from my experience, but I know that it is very common, but there's a lot of fear attached with what will happen to our young um, female identifying members, you know, like what will happen and will the world keep them safe? Um and it's really hard to have those conversations being in the position I'm in now, you know, being aware of my sexuality, being aware of different experiences, being aware of like friends of mine who have worked in the sex work community. It's very strange to see my nieces now and try not to instill that fear in them just to keep them safe. Uh, I think it's something that we are as communities are still 
dealing with and, and you know it, it is also police violence it's also backwoods missing human beings it's it's a lot to unpack and it's really hard to like find where that balance is to like talk about safety and talk about how you act around police or how you get out of abusive relationships without instilling fear and passing the intergenerational mess down to another generation of people. But I think it's also naive to think that the world will be a whole lot different in the 15 years that separates us. So my next question actually uh, sort of continuing with that. um, And Drew, you were touching on this a little bit earlier is I'm curious, like, race and racism are such huge topics and there's so I mean there's like so much piled in all of that and um you know obviously a lot of uh there's a lot of stuff like going on right now where things are sort of coming out of the woodwork with police brutality and things like we were talking about and institutionalized racism and things like that becoming sort of more like household ideas I feel like people are more aware of these things and how do we talk to kids about like such big and complicated topics like that, like institutionalized racism or, um, you know, systematic oppression of people and things like that. How do we break that down um, to a level that kids can understand? <laughs> I do not claim to have an answer there, but I will talk about what I'm thinking, <laughs> which is that, um, yeah, really big things and any kind of really big complicated subject for a little one that uh, could even be complicated by like really painful realities. Um, I think we face a difficulty in just like, how do I break down this huge atrocious thing that happened? And like, how much do you need to know about it right now? But um, I think asking ourselves those kind of critical questions as we're engaging ongoing in that process, kind of like what's age appropriate right now? And also um, what, what simplistic kind of way can I break this down? And for me, my kids are still pretty young. It's been a lot of like, well, in history, what does history even mean? Well, things happened before now (laughs) that lead to how we're experiencing now based on what has happened in history. Okay, so history has contained all these stories and groups of people. And then breaking it down um in a way again that is like here's how it's happened some without detail or with detail depending on ages and um one of the things that I've read that's helped me to in thinking about how to talk to kids about really difficult things is to be pointing out still the people who were empowered basically so this is what's happened and here are the like empowered role models that you can look to both people of color and white people, specifically in our own country's history, this entire trajectory, well, can skim over and break it down into like timelines of things. It can also be a general, this is how we've gotten here. Um, But breaking it down into systems and thinking in groups of, you know, groups of people do this and groups of people do that. And then these groups of people 
run or like they're the big bosses of these things and that influences everybody that's in there because they have to do what they said all of these kinds of power dynamic conversations which you can't have conversations about this stuff without having conversations about power also um and we can talk about consent in there we might as well right? <laughs> because <laughs> did you have the chance to give consent to that treatment no um Mm, and what oh just thinking to end these kind of conversations because they're they're scary and difficult partly because oh we don't want to leave like you were saying our kids with this kind of intergenerational trauma memories and not feeling any sense of power to oh my god now i just learned how my people have been oppressed in severe ways all throughout history great i'm five what am i going to do with this not <laughs> um but making a point to point out the helpers and the people who were like, this isn't okay. And we're going to do something about this because there's always been in all of our history, people who were saying this isn't okay. And so we're going to do something about it. So I always like to end on the like, yes, this is everything that's happened, but don't forget that there's all these people who see like you do that this isn't acceptable and we have to create a better future. And we do that by knowing what has brought us to here. You don't have to get overwhelmed by how we've gotten here, although you might, and that's just part of we're all going to process all of our history. But also remember that you can do things about the terrible things that you see and people always have. So. That helps you remember your community's legacy, know that you have power and agency in this. Yeah, I think like you were saying, adding in, like making sure that you're teaching them about like people who did create change and the positive strides that have been taken as well without forgetting the history and what we still need to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and also like, hey, like what can we do right now yes. to combat? Like, right? Yep. I think that there are even things that like we can do with kids absolutely um yeah for sure and i i think also relating it to things that kids can understand like if you're talking about power structures that sounds very complicated but you're like mm -hmm. okay right like hierarchies okay at school there's the principal the principal's in charge of everybody then like you have the principal's in charge of teachers and the teacher's in charge of you yeah. right so like yeah. everybody's in charge of someone and you're in charge of yourself like you know uh -huh. so yeah i think that relating it to things that they understand is like oh okay like somebody being in charge of yes. something. okay i can understand that um yeah it's really important because all of a sudden like max was you were saying earlier like we'll get on these like Power. big tangents and then all of a sudden we're like I don't know if any of those words were through like power structures and like right. burn the system down and the children are like, what's happening? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. There's so much translation work that has yes. to go into the process of like, how do I make this on a level that you can understand you don't get overwhelmed by it and you still feel some empowered agency at yeah. the end of it. Um, I think especially bringing it to relevant history has an impact on today and you can see history right now everywhere. You oh, are. yeah. One of the things that I think of with talking about Native Americans and indigenous rights and struggles during a conversation my kids and I were having about Thanksgiving and why we're not celebrating Thanksgiving and why little Tommy can't be in the Thanksgiving play this year, <laughs> which Side note, that was a whole to-do. And I don't think that they had it again the year yes. after. I think they actually did away with the whole thing because <laughs> we were like, no, my kid's not coming to, <laughs> to dress up. 
no. <laughs> but so we made like things for people who were at Standing Rock at that time and sent donations together and stuff like that. And it's just like, how can we take what we see on a historical level to yeah. and do something small? And yeah, I love that so much. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad that that I I totally contribute that to you. You did it. You canceled Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel. <laughs> oh my gosh! But that's true. That's that's awesome. that's such Thank a <laughs> that's like such a tangible one too. Like with ho- holidays and things like that. Um, yeah. Boycott. Yeah, boycott your Thanksgiving <laughs> play, guys. Yeah, there are so <laughs> many things that we can do that we're not even like that we're not even thinking about that are so easy. Um, yeah, and the teachers just asked me kind of, oh, we don't know, so could you tell us why? So I sent them some great links to some videos, and the last one was like a bunch of Native American women like pushing the table over talking about like the history of rape. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, there's nothing to celebrate right here. <laughs> just oh make gosh, sure. I love that so much. Also, I want um, that video. Please send me that video. Well, that's like... Um, Lucy's partner who popped in, Holly, the, it, we, we have a, um, a Pinterest page that's called Default Educators, and we all put our stuff there that's like so we can go there when someone – yeah, we can add you. So that way we have all the resources for all different kinds of things, for queer things and for race things and for whatever, so that we can just pop on there and be like, I need an article about this to send to someone. Boop. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's a fabulous resource. Yes, because it's so, a a lot of times, whether it's race or gender or whatever, uh, the people, you know, who are marginalized end up being the people who are expected to educate. And that is so much work. And you do have Google. And And especially when it's something that you can easily Google, like a definition. If you're like, I don't understand what genderqueer is, please just look it up. Um, You don't, like if you want to care about my experience as someone who identifies as a thing, like that's fine. And if I have the energy, I could talk to you about that. But if you're just asking for a definition, please just look it up <laughs> across the board. Also, yeah, or pay me if you want me to come come speak about my experience, especially around Thanksgiving. Pay me. <laughs> I like Christmas money. <laughs> um. So my sort of last uh, last question is um, sort of taking all of this into account and like up, as opposed to like, yes, prepare, preparing kids and how do like alongside that, how do we groom the children in our lives to not be racist themselves or not to enact racism and also to combat those kinds of situations when they're seeing them? Um, and I think especially like, especially thinking about white kids and kids who aren't, who might not have any other reason to be thinking about racism. Like how do we help empower kids um, to be able to say like, Hey, you're doing a thing. And like, that's not great. Um, And to, to recognize and be able to have the tools to safely, uh, you know, combat those kinds of situations. Well, I had two thoughts. One is, um, I work really hard, especially in very tight knit indigenous communities. When somebody marries an outsider and has children, um, or not even just an outsider, but a white person, if I want to be really blatant, um, 
there becomes like light skin, dark skin issues with how we are, even if we're from the same family or like, I I don't know. There's a lot of racism in that. Some of the more blatant racism that I've experienced in my life has been standing in a group where someone goes, oh, well, your cousin, she's blonde haired, blue dyed, so she's not really an Indian. Um, And I feel like now with my nieces and nephews and, and even my siblings, I have to like be very blatant about how and Disney is like is so much more than that. It's our language, it's our teachings, it's our culture, it's our ceremonies. Um and it's tricky at least for us because on the other hand you have the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who are like I claim indigeny and I claim and like pissed all over all of this stuff that you have built. Um, and, and there are these very gray areas where there are families whose grandparents are like mine, mm-hmm. who were removed and sent to residential schools and they came back and did not speak their language and did not teach their children their culture and did not teach their ceremonies for fear, just like my grandparents, um, that the government would come remove them because it was tangible to them that that would happen. Um, you know, and I'm not going to pretend that's not happening right now just with somebody else. Um, and so it's tricky to combat that blatant racism, especially if you haven't moved out of your community. If you are worried about mm-hmm. your children getting a spot in the tribal school because it's a charter school and there are a lot of people who maybe mm-hmm. you don't see as being having you know the right to be there so I think a lot of what I work to do with my family and with myself is ask myself like and I ask them very blatantly I'm like so you don't think they belong here why is that and like confronting it with having them explain it back to me because I think sometimes that at least in my experience, is the only way to stop mm. that cyclical thinking. Like if they have to blatantly explain it back to me, why somebody shouldn't be here or why somebody shouldn't be one of their identifying factors, the more they like try to incorporate their thoughts and feelings on it, it does two things. It susses out the feelings that are maybe, you know, the just the fear mm. or like, you know, the underlying self-hate or racism or whatever but it also starts to invalidate their point in that train of thinking because as they have to like really sparse it out for me and I'm talking like my my young teenagers um the more that they have to sparse it out the more that they're like wow that that sucks and I yeah you know um the other thing I think too is incorporating more um, digital media, which sounds really weird, but a lot of people who sell regalia in my culture or bead or make um, birch bark baskets or do sugar bush, which is like when you make the maple syrup or go wild rice harvesting, they're starting to put that stuff up online. So then everyone has access to it. And it's an equal opportunity kind of access. Um, 
And part of my culture is that you go look for those teachings. You go spend the time and invest your resources and energy into getting those. Um, and when that playing field is equalized with digital media now, um, the people who want that culture are really having still to do the work to go and find it. So um, I find that that helps a little bit. Um, yeah. And I think, again, back to having allies and people who are out in the world with your family and friends um, and conversations like this. I've had so many conversations like this with the children and parents in my lives that are not indigenous being like, you know, I'm a real person with real experiences and so is my culture. And it's not, you can't just rely on what you know to be my absolute truth. And like, let's talk about why you feel that that is something that you can exploit or misinterpret and not feel bad about. I also feel like for some reason with indigenous experiences in particular, people think that like you don't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god like, i have this conversation at least three or four times a month being like nope still here lucy suddenly poof disappears lucy doesn't exist um i mean we have two we have two, you know two people in high ranking power now and people are like native americans still exist yeah i know what coming out of the woodwork <laughs> oh my gosh this whole, you know, it's so funny because I've realized through doing something that is an audio medium that 90% of my, um, like, as, as both an Italian and someone who knows sign language, like, 90% of my, like, communication is expression and hand movements. <laughs> and I'm like, how do I translate this into media? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, but anyway, does anyone else have have thoughts on that about how to, you know, how to give, you know, how do we give kids the tools to combat racism in the world? Um, I did just share a link of, um, like, um, hopefully you'll be able to access it, but basically it's um, more of a tool for teachers of different um, curricula that, that they can use um, throughout the year. Um, it's specifically under, like, Black Lives, uh, like, um, like, Black History Month, um, but um, obviously these are sources that can be used throughout the year. And, we can't just um, learn about it one month yeah. a year. Goodness gracious! And the yeah, the shortest month of the year. Yeah, isn't that all the time that Black people get? You know, the coldest, <laughs> shortest month. Yeah, what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> My gosh, but that's awesome! I love that so much, and that's that's something that like a really easy way as a nanny that I incorporate those kinds of things, like, especially like, um, race things and culture things is I, (laughs) I literally at the beginning of the year, I'm also just like a little bit of a super nanny, like, because I'm an educator, I love, like, I plan curricula for my kids. Um, and so I will find like, we, during winter, we celebrated, I did a week where we did winter holidays and we celebrated like Christmas one day, we celebrated winter solstice one day, we um, we celebrated Diwali um, in the beginning because there was a little bit of overlap. Like we, ce- we just celebrated all holidays that happened in winter. And, um, you know, so I'll bring in cultural things like that. And then like for, and I mean, the kids I, I'm with are 18 months old and we literally had like Black History Month week. Um, I was just like, we're learning about Black History, guys. Um, and well, because I, and I think it's so easy to important and to incorporate different cultures and um, different, you know, 
those kinds of things with young and if you're doing it from the very beginning then it's not some kind of crazy surprise like me when I was like there are black people I'm 10 like you know what I mean if if you're being exposed to those things from the very beginning it's um you know it's not some kind of big culture shock or surprise uh and I just I don't know I feel like it's pretty easy to do that especially with kids books and with media and all of the resources we have um but yeah I feel like I feel like there are so many ways that we can do that and just having these conversations and like Drew, like you were saying, um, I think that something that I really abide by and believe is that you can make anything age appropriate um, for kids. You just have to think about what kind, how to give that information to them and how to relate it to things that they know and how to not give them more information than they need because they probably don't want your th- your 20 page thesis on like race. Um, they're going to be like, okay, can I go play with trains now? Like, I don't need this. Um, but how do we, how do we give them what they need at a tangible level? And I think all of this is so good. And I'm so, I'm so glad that y'all are here and that we had this conversation. Um, and before we go, does anyone have anything else to add? Just a final on talking to especially white kids about race and speaking directly to white audience people or parents, the educators listening, like there's a lot of fear on the white adult side of all of these conversations of like saying the wrong things like you talked about or, you know, oh, I'm not a person of color, so I can't talk about it. And that needs to stop as the beginning of um, your kid is in a multiracial world and is going to be a world citizen, needs to learn how to make mistakes, first of all, in learning about talking about people who are different than them and that be okay. And also to learn their own people's history, please God, (laughs) so that they don't go out as the older kids saying these ridiculous things that they didn't have a chance to say at home with you and get corrected. And so now they're saying out with their potential friends who can't be their friends now because all they can say is ignorant stuff because they didn't learn otherwise. And that wasn't their fault because that was your role. (laughs) So, um really like working through the white guilt and the fear of making mistakes and the fear of like oh no i'm gonna teach my white kid that all people are racist no you're gonna teach your white kid that you have a white supremacist background of this whole country and that they can be one of the white kids who does something differently and can be somebody who's a helper here so like don't be afraid to talk about it be, if, be willing to talk about it and make mistakes and hey, cry together. I don't know, do whatever you need to, but the worst <laughs> thing you could do is not talk about it. And yeah. yeah, please go like experience all the different multicultural festivals and even better have a diverse community. I can't think of really a better thing than actually having like talking about Lucy, people thinking like, oh, Native American people don't exist anymore. Well, clearly you don't have anybody in your community with any native experience or you would know that and not that we all have access because we all live in different areas of the country but we sure do have digital access Mm -hmm. and we can learn see a whole lot right now if you don't have physical access so yeah i think not waiting for a situation to be like oh now i have a racist like something has happened oh my god now i actually have to tell them things no tell them things from the beginning so that once you get there you have a foundation 
The theme is be proactive. The proactive. Theme of <laughs> um, I think you also struck on something really important, which is teaching kids that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to say things and be corrected by so- like, I am by no means like perfect. Mm-hmm. And I say things all the time that are, you know, that might like I, I remember the first time I got called out on saying something ableist like I, I I said something I was like oh that's so lame and my friend was like yeah that's really ableist Seth and I was like oh my god you're right it is and I like no one had ever made me aware of that before I never thought about it and if that person had been like oh well I don't want to hurt Seth's feel like no like please tell me and I was able to you know say oh great I now that I know that I won't use that in my language anymore um also, please, when someone from a community tells you about something, believe them. <laughs> if they tell you something's problematic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Listening yes. and the like, wow, thank you for sharing Seriously. that with me. Uh, any humble response. Oh, thank you for taking yes. your energy to educate me about that. I appreciate that. Or, you know, I can't actually, I'm having such a response right, right now. I better remove myself yeah. and really think through why I'm having such a response so I can come back and like appropriately thank you for that. Uh, And if you don't understand, ask. Like if there were certain things where people are like, well, that's problematic. I'm like, well, can you, like, I believe you, but can you explain to me a little more about like why it's problematic Um, and have a conversation, you know, Mm -hmm. if they, and always ask people like, do you have the energy (laughs) to explain this to me? Or do you have a resource or, you know, or is this something I could just Google? (laughs) And I think modeling that for kids, when we talk about building a uh, less racist society, having kids, like you said, be willing to make mistakes and be able to be corrected and like, look, you're just not going to know everything about this other community that you don't belong to. (laughs) So even adults don't know everything. Like we don't. And I think there's this weird idea that adults need to act like we're perfect and we do know everything. And I think one of the strongest things you can do is say, I don't know. Let's look it up together. Let's figure it out. Yes. Yeah. The other thing I might add to that is that I think that adults, especially when interacting with children, um, tend to get sheepish or embarrassed. And I would Mm -hmm. say that, the one thing that continues systemic racism is turning a blind eye to communities that are in need that you just feel overwhelmed by trying Mm. to understand. Um, I think there's a lot of humility in that and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to chunk off figuring out how to explain ice to your kids or how to explain uh, the immigration you know, the problems with immigration and how people are being so severely treated in this country, you don't have to chunk the whole thing off and try to digest it and spit it back at your kids. So they're less racist, but turning a blind eye to kids in cages isn't, you know, isn't helpful either. And I think especially when people are feeling strong guilt, or if we want to call that white guilt, or not sure really what to do about an experience that they have no frame of reference for. Um, I think the worst thing that we can do for children and ourselves is just to turn Mm. away from it. Um, And I really want to encourage people that we as marginalized communities, we as people of color, we don't get the luxury of turning away Mm. from it. Um, And you shouldn't rely on that either because that's in truth what keeps that 
thinking going and we can have all of the Black History Months we want, but when you're turning away from the humanity of people, you're teaching your kids to turn away yeah, from the humanity absolutely. of people. Thank you for that. I guess. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about this all day. This is such a big topic. But thank you so much for um, for sharing your experiences and for being here very early in the morning. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I'm just, I'm so excited and so grateful that we could have this conversation and share our thoughts. All right, so now it's time for our final segment, our book review segment, Way to Go and Room to Grow, where we talk about some books related to our topic, what they have done well, and what maybe they could do better in the future. So uh, as far as the topic of race goes, there is a series of books for younger kids that I actually really like, and it's called Global Babies, and it's sort of the typical kind of like baby faces books where it's sort of short on words, but the idea is that young kids and especially infants, toddlers are seeing pictures of baby faces because a lot of young kids are really, really um, sort of entranced by baby faces, which is very cute. There's a couple of these books. There's Global Babies, Global Baby Bedtimes, Global Baby Boys, and Global Baby Girls. Global Baby now doesn't sound like anything anymore. I've said it so many times. Um, so the way to go for these books, I think, is just they show kids from all over the world um, doing all sorts of different things. And I, I just really love that um, that exposure of, of kids to babies and faces and families that look different than theirs. My room to grow for this book is I'm, I'm not a fan of the binary books, the global baby girls and global global baby boys. I don't think there's any reason to split kids up by sex like that. Um, and it just sort of perpetuates this idea of two genders, which I don't necessarily believe in. <laughs> Not even necessarily. I don't believe that there are only two genders. Um, and I think it excludes, you know, trans folks. Um, so in general, I'm just not a fan of that. But I still really think that the series is worthwhile, uh, and I would definitely recommend it. And I don't think that I mentioned the author, which is the Global Fund for Children. So yeah, if you have young kids, I would definitely check check those books out. They're really great. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Rad Child. Stay rad. Thank you, are two words said too often. So instead of saying them, I thought I'd put them in a song. First of all, Denise, who makes all of our awesome art. Thanks for sharing your talent. That's really cool on your part. Thank you to the Upford Network for having faith in me. To Tom, Toby, and Teffer, y'all are rad as can be. You might think the song is repetitive, and that may well be true. 
I couldn't think of a better way to say my thank yous. So without further ado, to our donors, Danilo and Morgan, Carol, Simona, and to Emily, to Leia and Amy, Izzy and Candice, and to Joelle, to Vicky, Joanna, Jennifer, Max, Libby, and Michelle, to Tracy, Nathaniel, Sam, and Maggie, Christian, and Timo, to Hannah and Andrew, Mel and Drew, and to Caroline, to Dominique, Lee and Rita, Ellen, Isabel, and to Michelle, to Travis and Lindsay, Jamie and Lori, and to Erica, to Laura and Lauren, Jennifer, Sarah, and to Adrienne, to Teresa, and to Nash, y'all are the very best. Lastly, to my wife, my daily inspiration. You may find that cheesy. Anyway, the song is done. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Hi, I'm Candace Pye, and I'm the host of Gal Chat, a weekly podcast where we give you our feminist takes on everything from sex and dating to politics and pop culture. It's a show that updates you on controversial headlines, dives into the latest movies and TV, and discusses things like Tinder troubles and Me Too struggles. I put out a new show every Tuesday with special guests, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, review, and follow us on social media at Gal Chat Pod. Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts.